Hey, I'm Jeffrey Rickman, and this is Plain Spoken. Last week I did a report on an interesting new development, which was that the Council of Bishops declared that central conferences, which are any of the conferences outside of the United States, cannot use paragraph 2553 to disaffiliate from the United Methodist Church. That is the only paragraph which allows disaffiliation, except for one, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But uh, Chris Ritter and several others have been writing about the very uh, uh, potential reality that uh, the denomination is intentionally entrapping otherwise not willing congregations and entire conferences into this denominational body. And uh, I've been wanting to explore that as a potential uh, reality. You know, I'm not going to say this is what's going on. However, I think it's something that is worth exploring. Uh, not because uh, I just want to uh, make people look bad or make the institution look bad, but because there is virtue in knowing and seeking truth. So this video right here is going to be made for those who want to kind of go through the different component parts of what's going on here and try and understand uh, the, the waters we're swimming in. So I wanted to start with this uh, article by... John Lon Paris, and I know Bishop Trimble recently declared war on him, and, and he's persona non grata. I think he does a really great job uh, in writing and referencing his stuff on the United Methodist Church. I would be very surprised if anyone can, can point out how he is lacking in his analysis. I thought this particular uh, article, which I referenced several months ago, liberal bishops have redefined United Methodist polity. He lays out a very firm uh, argument that bishops have indeed upended the order and governance of our denomination. We don't have time to go through the whole article, although I would love to. He has great hyperlinks and references all throughout the article. The section I wanted to focus on is the theory that we're going to be testing in this. Quote, we have also recently seen numerous examples of liberal bishops abusing their authority to heavy-handedly engineer their preferred policy results in annual conferences rather than simply let these regional legislative bodies exercise their rights to make their own proper decisions. Meanwhile, the denomination's Supreme Court, the Judicial Council, simply no longer functions as an independent, independent third branch or effective check on the Council of Bishops' power ambitions. Its basic functionality has become very limited. It used to meet every six months. It's talking about the Judicial Council now. Uh, used to meet every six months according to clear public timelines. Now everything is much slower and less predictable. For example, a question of law from one annual conference's 2020 session was only addressed by the Judicial Council last June, nearly two years later. The Judicial Council is not making use of its many alternate members who could help move things along. So the Judicial Council, of course, uh, the United Methodist Church is structured in a way to mirror the federal government the United States, and it very much sees itself as a similar bureaucracy. The Judicial Council mirrors uh, the judiciary of uh, the United States, which is, of course, the Supreme Court. So uh, a lot of people don't know who these members are, and it took me a while to find this website. I don't know why, but here are, are the members. we got Dennis Blackwell, Tim Brewster, and I'll have, uh, let's see, let's, we'll put the link to this website on the the show notes. But these these people uh, has bios on almost all of them except for Beth, Beth Capen here. Uh, we have Lydia Gulele. 
I don't even know how to pronounce that first name. When you put that strike through the O, just count me out. Oyvind Heliason, J. Kamamba Kiboko, Warren Plowden, Ruben Reyes, Dinel Tacha, uh, Luan Vutran. Interesting fact about him, it's actually in the, the article I just referenced on further down. Lomperis says that, that this guy is the pastor of a church in California that is openly affiliated with Reconciling Ministries Network, which is not supposed to happen, but uh, legally we're not supposed to affiliate with any organizations that uh, advocate for positions against um, the denominational position. Somehow this guy has been serving the whole time without problem. And N. Oswald Twe. Oh, and he's a president. I didn't see that till now. Usually, uh, the reporting I see doesn't talk about these individuals, even though they exercise immense um, power over what happens in our denominations. So I, I don't understand that, but um, it seems to me, I, and I couldn't, there, there, if there's anybody who's chronicled this, I haven't found it, but it seems to me that a number of them have been in these positions for a long time. And you know how on the U.S. Supreme Court, we know which ones uh, lean left and which ones lean right and kind of what the, the different schools of thought are that each justice adheres to. To my knowledge, nobody's gone down the line of the current membership of the Judicial Council and done the same thing. Although you could kind of assume one thing or another based on the uh, local church appointments of, of some of these. Um, the, what we're supposed to believe is that they are unbiased and that they just make decisions of law based on the text that they're dealing with. Um, Lomperis in that article that I just referenced, the article continues for a couple pages down with lots of different references to different cases showing that they pretty, according to Lomperis, they make decisions in accordance with what the liberal council of bishops has decided they need to decide. So there's, if you've ever seen the Book of Discipline, it's a thick book. There's a lot of text there. There's a lot to draw upon to make whatever decisions you want to make. So in my video last week, I talked about these two letters. One was from uh, Bishop Bickerton on uh, behalf of the whole Council of Bishops. You should see it right here. I, I went through it. Um, he talks about how it is, uh, he just says flat out, they cannot use paragraph 2553. Rather, instead, they should use paragraph 5. 572 in the Book of Discipline. Um, then there's another letter that we'll come back to in a minute, but one of the things that I wanted to do was just figure out what does paragraph 572 actually say? When he says that's the one that they need to use, what does it say? And it's actually a pretty small... I thought I just called this up. All right, so this is a pretty small paragraph, paragraph 572, becoming an autonomous Methodist affiliated, whatever, it's a long title. This is the only one Bickerton says applies to central conferences. And he says in the letter, this is a long and extensive process, which is the fact that he even says that says to me that he, he's, he wants them to be intimidated by this notion that they could, could disaffiliate. So when conferences outside of the United States or parts of the United Methodist Church desire to become autonomous Methodist, Affiliate Autonomous Methodist or Affiliated United Church approval shall be secured from the central conference involved, and this decision be ratified by the annual conferences within the central conference by two-thirds majority of the aggregate votes cast by the annual conferences. All right, so already you have to have two-thirds majority of all the voters. Then the conference shall prepare 
a historical record with reasons why affiliation and our autonomy is requested and shall consult with the Standing Committee on Central Conference Matters. I didn't know it until I started looking into this. That's a big committee. That's an important committee. That committee is responsible for the language of the petition that has affected this whole situation. It's important to know about this committee. This committee is what was responsible for what version of the traditional plan went before the body of the general conference. Uh, they've made a bunch of important decisions, and it's saying that if these central conferences want to disaffiliate, they're going to have to explain their reasons to this standing committee uh, why they want to do it. The inference being that if their explanations are not good enough, it might not go through. Uh, point two, the Standing Committee on Central Conference Matters and the conferences involved shall mutually agree on the confession of faith and constitution of the new church. Okay, well, what happens if they don't mutually agree? Can they not uh, disaffiliate? These shall be prepared with care and shall be approved by the conferences. Number three, preparation of its discipline is a responsibility of the conferences desiring affiliation or and or autonomy. Uh, okay. Point four, upon recommendation of the Standing Committee on Central Conference Matters, when all disciplinary requirements for affiliated and or autonomous relationship have been met, the General Conference, through an enabling act, shall approve of and grant permission for the conferences involved to become autonomous. So what I think becomes clear throughout all this is if the Standing Committee on Central Conference Matters doesn't feel good about any of this, then they cannot disaffiliate. So that committee is an important committee to know about, but how much do these people represent the interests? Um, well, and the larger question is, the, the people that, that bishops and conferences have put in charge, how much do those people have local church interests or regional interests at heart, and then how much do they have like overall institutional interests at heart? Are they more interested in um, maintaining the large institution of the United Methodist Church or in uh, blessing congregations and regional bodies um, in the ways that they can. So the other letter that came out was this letter from the bishops in the Philippines. And I spoke with a couple of Filipino friends this weekend. Um, they're of the mind that the Filipino bishops actually wanted for the Council of Bishops to make this pronouncement that 2553 cannot be used. And, and I asked, you know, why is it that they wouldn't want these things to be used? Why is it that, that many of the African bishops don't seem to be interested in facilitating disaffiliation? And the answer uh, in the Filipino context was the bishops like having centralized uh, power and authority, and anytime you allow people to live, leave, that just diminishes your power and authority as well as your monetary base. But they started quoting language in here that I didn't recall seeing before, and it's very small on this this uh, form here, but we're going to see this language a lot more. Here in the second paragraph, it talks about how these uh, 2553 could not be enabled until after, um, a year after the 2020 General Conference, which, this was kind of screwy, the 2020 General Conference did not happen. Um, and so you had Judicial Council 1451, uh, Decision 1451, that was made. We'll come back to this at the end of this presentation, but the Judicial Council ruled that you can't really cancel a general conference. It disenfranchises all the different people that were elected to vote, and so the discipline 
no provision in the discipline authorizes the cancellation of a regular session of the general conference. Um, and so it, it concludes at the end, the next meeting scheduled for 2024 is designated as the postponed 2020 general conference. So because of that pronouncement, the, the logic is 2020 general conference doesn't happen until 2024, so we can't enact this 20, uh, paragraph 2553 for central conferences until a year after that general conference. When it just so happens, you won't be able to use it anyway. So it's, it's just uh, crazy making. Um, I thought we would look at the official language adopted by the General Conference at 2019, because I wanted to make sure this was something real. And this is the original petition. Actually, it's more easily readable like this. And you'll see it was uh, originally associated with the One Church Plan, which, of course, was voted down at General Conference, uh, preferring instead the traditional plan. Um, and then this was um, uh, an amendment that was suggested um, to the original language I just wanted to pull up that it was affiliated with the One Church Plan. The original language is right here, and it was approved at the General Conference. Legislation passed at the 2019 called session of the General Conference shall not take effect in central conferences until 12 months after the close of the 2020 General Conference in order to afford the necessary time to organize a central conference and to make such rules and regulations for the administration and work within the boundaries, including such changes and adaptations of the general discipline as the conditions in the respective areas may require, subject to the powers that have been or shall be vested in the general conference, uh, paragraph 31.5 of the Constitution, without regard to the language used in the central conference. So a lot of that is a lot of words that it is clear shall not be enacted till a year after, but it also provides the rationale. Why is the rationale to give time? So originally, it was assumed for very obvious reasons we're looking two years out. So the, the letter of the law says 2020 General Conference, which more recently we've said is actually going to be in 2024, which kind of bends logic. Um, but here the language, the fact that it includes a rationale to me means a lot. Um, and I shouldn't say to me, it means a lot that it stipulates the rationale in there. Now, uh, one of the things that the, the General Conference puts out is an actual script of the proceedings at General Conference. So I went through the part of General Conference where they adopted these words. Um, and I highlighted portions that, of course, I find useful. So there's the portion right down here that establishes, even though the language was for the One Church Plan, once the One Church Plan got thrown out, the Standing Committee on Central Conference Matters, that's, that's who presented this petition, they said it should be applied. Even though they didn't do the One Church Plan, it should be applied to the traditional plan. Um, so they made that explicit on um, the front end. 97% of the members of, of that committee approved it. Um, there's interesting give and take here. There was a, an amendment that was proposed, proposed by Scott Campbell. Um, and I didn't highlight his actual rationale, and I wish I had, but the, the notion, the concern here was that we've continually had this, um, 
separate but equal but not really treatment of central conferences. There's the American United Methodist Church, and then there's everybody outside. And so the people who tried to amend this motion, they tried to make it so that the entire denomination couldn't use 2553 until a year out so that we would all be treated equally. They said, you know, it is enough. We've been doing this thing long enough. United Methodists are all equal. Let's have the same timetable for everybody. It's going to be equally hard for everybody, um, so let's just have that. And then time and time again, the parts that I highlight, they say, you know what, that might be a good resolution, but uh, it doesn't really apply to this section in the Book of Discipline. This one deals with central conferences, so let's go ahead and pass this one through, and then maybe we can come back and do what you're wanting to do. And of course, they never came back and, and did anything like this. So eventually, they did take the vote, and it was not by the same 97% uh, margin, but they did adopt the petition language, and the rest, as they say, is history. Um, what else is there to look at? Um, well, before we look at these Judicial Council decisions, um, well, we already looked at Judicial Council 1451. Now it's time to look at um, number 1446. I said we would take a minute, but not really. We're not going to because this was the decision that came out last year with respect to the jurisdictional conferences. Jurisdictional conferences is where we can elect new bishops, and of course, well, maybe not, of course, they cannot meet until a general conference has met enabling the jurisdictional conferences. And of course, the general conference didn't happen in 2020, so you had all these bishops wanting to retire, these regions where bishops had to retire that didn't have bishops. And of course, in Africa, they're way understaffed with bishops, um, and they're not, they haven't gotten new bishops, but they still don't get them. Here in America, we said we need new bishops. So the Judicial Council uh, augmented Decision 1445, which said that nothing could go forward uh, without another general conference. And they said um, the jurisdictional conferences and other competent bodies may proceed. So they said even though by the letter of the law you cannot do this stuff without a general conference meeting, the church required it. So let's look at some of these quotes. So in the circumstance of this case, the Council of Bishops is authorized to set the date of regular jurisdictional conferences for the election and assignment of new bishops for the limited purpose of effectuating the continuance of an episcopacy. So already that's kind of wrong. The episcopacy would have continued. It just would have been understaffed and, and stressed. Um, the next quote I have, when it's enacted, what it enacted these paragraphs, here's the key thing for me. The general conference neither anticipated nor made provision for a global pandemic and continuing conference delays. Therefore, to harmonize the constitutional and disciplinary requirements and to meet the needs of the church in this unprecedented situation, we hold that we're going to change this stuff. So right there, you know, there are people that get frustrated with the book of discipline and say, ah, you know, it just can't meet the needs of a, a real—we're being way too litigious. But here, the Judicial Council showed that it can look at extenuating circumstances and say, obviously, the business of the church needs to continue. Obviously, the intention of how they spelled it out was not applicable in this situation. So there's things that are so self-evident that you go, all right, well, obviously, we can't be slaves to this text that didn't foresee this global pandemic— so we need to change it. Now, in this case, whenever it suited—here, I'm going <laughs> to— 
Well, I'll just go ahead and do it. North American United Methodists provide the vast majority of money. They're predominantly rich and white and old. And whenever they want something, they get what they want. So when they wanted the uh, jurisdictional conferences to meet and give new bishops, they got what they wanted. They got the Judicial Council to say, clearly this is an extenuating circumstance. Let's make an allowance for it. However, when you have black and brown people, in this case primarily Filipinos, wanting to apply uh, uh, what was given to them at the, the general conference, the Council of Bishops does not want this. And so the Judicial Council says, well, shucks, you know, here's the plain reading of what we put in this petition. And even though it kind of bends your mind to understand it, actually, we just can't allow a way out. So when you when you look at the dissonance of, okay, why are they willing to acknowledge that the COVID pandemic threw things off here and then not here? Why are they willing to make special allowances for the people of North America here and not for the people of the Philippines here? And it's really hard. I, you just have to go back to this article from Lom Paris uh, where he makes the case that the Judicial Council has effectively been overruled by the Council of Bishops. And when you look at how this went down, this particular instance, the Judicial Council wasn't even the ones making this decision. It was the Council of Bishops. Whenever the Philippines put this question uh, out, it was not the Judicial Council that came back and answered. It was the Council of Bishops. It was Bickerton. Why did that happen? Why is that acceptable? I don't understand. I just think this is such a clear instance of I mean, it says, it says to me, hey, don't even worry about the Judicial Council anymore. It's just the bishops and what they want. It, they set the terms. They're going to decide when uh, the Book of Discipline applies and how to apply it. Don't even worry about the Judicial Council. Now, I'm sure that's, that is hyperbolic speech. I'm sure there's more nuance than that. However, in this particular case, it seems quite evident. Now, one person who commented on my original reporting on this says, well, now the decision can be appealed to the Judicial Council. But you know what? This whole 2553, it ends at the end of this year. And the Judicial Council doesn't always move fast. As Lon Paris pointed out, there are some decisions that don't get made until two, two years out. So if the appeal is made right now, there's nothing saying that any sort of uh, overturning is going to happen anytime soon. Even if it does, all this still has to be put in place in order for them to follow a process to disaffiliate. So it's like in West Virginia, which I recently reported on. If they don't have an official disaffiliation agreement in place, then they have no way to navigate their way out. Now, supposedly, they're putting something out in the next couple of weeks in West Virginia, but then they only have one annual conference this year to disaffiliate, and they'll only have 90 days to complete the whole process. So the way that this works is that they don't actually come out and say, no, we're not willing for you to leave, even though we the, uh, the general conference created a way out. We're just uh, we're going to say you can't buy the discipline. Even if that gets overturned, we're going to drag our feet so long that realistically only very few can make it out if they make it happen really quick and they have a lot of motivation. It just doesn't seem right in a, in a basic moral sense. And so that's, that's the place that we're at. We have two competing values. One is the preservation of the institution, of the denomination, and another is a, a respect and honoring of individual churches and regions and what they want to do. And so 
what the institution now seems to be doing is building up all this pressure where you have a majority of uh, global churches and a minority of American churches that just don't want to be a part of this anymore. And so rather than let them go right now, um, you know, if they let everybody go right now, the African church would still continue to grow. Some would stick it out and then eventually overrule the liberals of America. They want to find a way where the liberals in America can hold on to everything that they've got and get their way on uh, uh, um, gender ethics, sexual ethics, um, and say that they're a global church and have all these these uh, other affiliated bodies elsewhere. So the only way they get that is if they convince them to vote for the Christmas Covenant plan. Now, the Christmas Covenant can only be adopted by two-thirds of the General Conference. It needs that margin. And right now they can't clinch it if uh, Africans in particular only vote for what they want. They see it for what it is. It's the one church plan uh, all over again. They know that it's it's it would not suit, suit their interests. They know that it would result in America liberalizing its sexual ethics and Africa being tethered to them. They don't want to do that. But the Americans, in order to incentivize them doing that, are going to keep everybody in um, until they vote the way that they want. That's what it looks like to me. So I haven't fit all the pieces together, but it, it seems very clear that the will of General Conference hasn't been enforced for some time. The gatekeepers have uh, staffed the the may. You know what? I can't say that firmly. I need to do more research. Okay, but what my suspicion is is that the people on the Standing Committee for Central Conference Matters in the Judicial Council are full of people that are sympathetic to the Council of Bishop rather than reflecting the will of the General Conference. That's that's the fear and suspicion that a lot of conservatives would have. Um, but I, I don't know what, what study you would have to do to, to prove that. I guess you'd have to go down the line of each individual component representative on there and figure out what their personal theological beliefs are and try and average it all together. I guess that's the only way to actually do that, which... <laughs> is a bit beyond the scope of what plain spoken can do. And um, you know what? I'm not sure you do have to do that to just— I think what we can say clearly is, gee, these bodies seem to make decisions that work hand-in-hand hand with the Council of Bishops. They seem to do that a lot. And, you know, the last Judicial Council decision that didn't go hand-in-hand hand with the Council of Bishops was when they decided against Bishop Oliveto being a valid— bishop. But what they did was they put that in the hands of the jurisdictional conference, and then, of course, they did not act on it, and then there was nothing to be done. So I, I think a case can be made that these bodies make decisions that do not reflect the will of the general conference very often, but they always, if not most, mostly, align with the Council of Bishops. And that's concerning if the Council of Bishops doesn't reflect. You know, here's the larger question, and I think I'll end on this. And I was talking with some Filipinos. They, they say the church there is largely conservative, but the bishops are all liberal. And then, of course, whenever you look at the reporting of uh, uh, United Methodist Communications, they looked at people in the pews in the United Methodist Church. Majority of them are conservative or centrist conservative, and yet all of our bishops are liberal. How does this happen? You know, when you look at who serves on committees, who, who works in um, – on conference cabinets. You know, it's not a 100% thing, but generally speaking, the higher up you climb in the denomination, the more liberal the average person is. 
what explains that? Um, that's, I don't know. what. If you made it this long, you tell me how to research that because I would like to have a coherent explanation for how it is that a generally conservative body, the United Methodist Church, finds itself with not just kind of liberal, but I mean, in my book, the leadership is very liberal of the United Methodist Church. How does this happen? Um, so uh, there, I feel like I understand a lot of this, but there's a lot I still don't. So anyway, thanks for bearing with me through this stuff. I hope you like seeing these original documents and how things fit together. Um, if you're watching from a central conference, then what I would urge you to do is just be very vocal, organize, make your will known. Um, I, I think the worst thing in the world would just be to dis get discouraged and quiet, you know. So let let your your leadership know where you're at and what you want and and organize. Get together and talk about what you want to do. Um, and if you're an American watching this, let's just pray for our Central Conference brothers and sisters. They uh, they they don't seem to be having much power. We're we're the ones who have all the power and. Um, it's hard to understand how the power dynamics work in the United Methodist Church. So let's pray for them and uh, pray for the United Methodist Church and pray that God's will be done.